0: Amen. So open your Bibles. Mark chapter 1. We're going to jump in pretty quickly. No witty intro this morning. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to be discussing three things. Three occurrences in the early uh, ministry of Jesus. and the beginning of His time explaining and declaring the Kingdom of God. So first we're going to look at His consecration for ministry and His baptism. His temptation by Satan in the wilderness and His proclamation of the best news that the world will ever hear in the wilderness. And so I want you to see this morning how these things are necessary. They were necessary for his ministry, but they're also necessary for understanding the kingdom of God. And so we're going to treat each one of these events separately because they are three separate events and Mark treats them as such. So we'll look at them individually, but we'll also look at what unites them. And so many of these that we're very familiar with, they beg some questions that maybe you've asked or maybe you've never considered and we want to address those this morning as well. And so hopefully from this time in our text this morning, it'll bring some appreciation and some, and some insight for these well-known events that a lot of us just take at face value uh, and don't really understand how important they are and all the implications for them. So again, if you do have your Bibles, we'll be in Mark chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 9. I'm going to read through verse 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Come before you this morning, our Lord, our God, our King. You are God like no other. Truly, there is no other. You alone are God, your God Father, perfect plan throughout all of creation, before creation, perfectly orchestrated and executed. You are God the Son, fulfillment of all the prophets, all of the law, all of the writings, the full redemption of new humanity, the perfect sacrifice for sin. King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of peace. You are God Spirit. The very power of creation. The agent of our transformation. The agent of our sanctification. The agent of our understanding. So Lord, we come before you this morning that the Father's plan may be declared and understood. That the Son's work may be declared and praised. That the Spirit's power that you declared and effective in us this morning, that you receive all the praise and all the glory, that you would use the words of your humble servant to encourage your servants, that we would proclaim your kingdom and your power and your glory to every tongue, tribe, and nation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first we're going to look at Jesus' baptism, the inaugural event of Jesus' ministry. We think of inauguration, we think of the beginning. Something public that declares something is happening here. It is official and everyone needs to know. And So this is a very public event. And it's important for us to understand this is not for Jesus' benefit. This is nothing new to Jesus in this event. This is for John's benefit, so he can see the fulfillment of his ministry, but for all of the witnesses. This is meant to be public. This is meant to be symbolic, and we're going to draw on those, those symbols. So picking up in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So as we saw on the map a couple of weeks ago, Jerusalem, capital city of Judea is in the south. Galilee is in the north, just outside of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is from the sticks. He's not from a big city. He's not from any... Uh, any royal place, and so everyone doubts that his ministry is legitimate. So we're going to get into that more next week of where he is and where he's ministering. But he comes from this small town, and he goes out to the Jordan. John tells us in his gospel that it's Bethany. It's a city on the, on the outskirts of the Jordan. So Jesus goes from a small town into a wilderness, right at the edge of the wilderness where John is preaching and where John is baptizing. And so, just to recap, last week we talked about John's baptism. And the nature of John's baptism and the baptism that we have is different. John, as an Old Testament prophet, meaning he prophesied and he uh, worked before the completion of Jesus' works, is promoting and preparing the way for the Lord. And in that preparation, he is reminding a sinful people that they need to be purified before a holy God, that their sins need to be forgiven. They need to cleanse themselves of unrighteousness and repent. That they would turn from the wicked deeds that had marked Israel for centuries and turn toward God and righteousness. This is John's ministry. This is John's baptism. And Jesus seeks him out. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and was baptized by John. The other gospel writers tell us that he went to be baptized by John. This is not an afterthought. This is... Not something that he was pressured into. This is part of the plan. He sought John out. And John, rightly in Matthew 3, is shocked. And he says, how can I baptize you? You need to be baptizing me. Because John understands that I'm just a servant. I'm just a mini-mediator here. But you are the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. How can I baptize you? But Jesus' response is profound. He says, let it be so, for it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Now those words are going to be helpful for us this morning. Because the first question we may ask, and many of you probably have, is why did Jesus, why was Jesus baptized? Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Now did he need to be baptized in the sense that everyone else needed to be baptized, or did he need to be baptized in a different sense? Um... So I came up with four reasons. There's, there's probably more. But we have to understand in Jesus' own world, he, he, he did it willingly. It must be so. And He did it to fulfill all righteousness. Why is that important? The first thing we need to understand culturally, if you have read your Old Testament, it is commonplace for servants, for kings, for priests to be consecrated. Consecration is a setting apart. It is an anointing. It is a cleansing for a specific divine mission. And so there is a consecration that happens before you can, or you are sent out to do what God has called you to do. And so Jesus is stepping into that tradition. But also, being the Messiah, He is truly man. He is man in every sense of the word. And so... He must fulfill what is required of a man. He must fulfill all the expectations of righteousness. He must fulfill all of the law, all of the prophets. And one of those expectations is confirming the, the, the prophets of God. And we touched on this last week when Jesus is debating with the Pharisees and they are challenging Him and He asks them, where is John's baptism? Is it from man or from God? They wouldn't answer, but Jesus' answer is clear. John was sent from God. John is a prophet of the Lord. And so if he is, Jesus will be obedient to those who are sent in the name of the Lord. And he humbles himself under John's ministry and to fulfill John's ministry, to prepare the way for the Lord. And in the cleansing baptismal ministry of John, so we've got the first three, commonplace for King's priest, second one being truly human, and third confirming the ministry of John, and fourth, in John's baptism, as the suffering servant, he must identify with the sins of those he came to save. He must recognize, and he, excuse me, the people must recognize through his action, he declares that there does need to be forgiveness of sins, that there does need to be a cleansing, there does need to be a repentance because all of the people who went out there could not forgive themselves, and many of them went on to shout, crucify Him, He must do it on their behalf. He must, in every way, stand in the place of sinners. And here, as He does, all the way to the cross, and still does, as our high priest, He steps in as their representative. Everything that is required of them, He will do and fulfill on their behalf. And if you are in Christ, He does it on your behalf. This is why Jesus must be baptized. Because all of Scripture's fulfillment, it finds its place and its content in Him. Now so let's look at the details and then look at the application for us. A couple details as we go through this. Verse 10, And when He came up out of the water continues the immersive picture of Jesus' baptism. Jesus' consecration is a covering. It is a complete preparation. It is not lacking anything. He is completely washed, completely covered. He is completely consecrated. And he comes up out of the heaven in the heavens, or excuse me, out of the water, and then something amazing happens. The heavens, the very sky is torn apart. Now this language is violent and it is dramatic. The same word is used out of the temple veil in chapter 15. Jesus is on the cross. The temple veil from top to bottom is torn in half to declare the work of heaven interceding and coming into time and space. Here, heaven itself is torn apart. It shows the kingdom of God's dramatic entrance. Into the kingdom of earth. Heaven opened up. God tears into time and space to declare and make his work known. You want to know the origin of this? Is it from man or is it from heaven? So you don't confuse this one, I'm going to rip the sky in half. And then the confirmation comes the spirit descends like a dove. Let's deal with the Spirit descending first. Uh, one, we do not know if this is literally a dove, but we're going to get into the dove in a moment. Um, but we do know what it symbolizes. First of all, there was murmurings around Israel during this time. Has the Spirit of God left Israel? This is a legitimate question, because there had been no prophetic word for 400 years. The, the Israelites were in captivity to Rome. And they were, they were limited in many ways. They, they had no king anymore. They had no identity. They only had what Rome would give them. Has the Spirit of God left Israel? This was to confirm that the Spirit of God had not left Israel, but the Spirit of God came specifically for this time and for this reason. And because of this this fear and this uncertainty that went on within Israel, this is the reason why they were so intent on finding out who John the Baptist and who Jesus were. Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you one of the prophets? Are you the Messiah? Because there had been such a drought, a spiritual drought in Israel, that everyone knew something must change. This was the sign that something new was coming. And the Spirit descends on him. The other gospel writers tell us, and not just to stand, but he remained, as, as John tells us. And he was full of the Holy Spirit when he went into the wilderness, as Matthew tells us. This is not just a one-time event. This is an indwelling, a union on earth. of God the Son and God the Spirit. More on that in just a moment. So why a dove? So in the Bible, the dove represents a lot of things. One, it's a white bird, so it's pure, spotless. It's also the most common term that Solomon uses for his beloved, my dove. It's a term of beauty and endearment and love and intimacy. It also speaks of uh, perfection, speaks of freedom. Doves are known for being lifelong mates. They are faithful. A dove represents all of these things, but there's also the image of peace and restoration. If you remember, when Noah was on the ark, sent out the raven. The raven found nothing. The black raven found nothing but the white dove. Eventually brought back a sign of peace and restoration and life in the olive branch. All of these images come to mind. And so whether this was a literal dove or a spirit descended like a dove, it was to bring these images to mind, but also brings us all the way back to the beginning. Anyone remember what happens in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then what? The Spirit, thank you, Cherie, was hovering over the waters. The Spirit was there confirming creation, hovering, protecting, gliding like a dove over creation. The Spirit is here confirming new creation. That in Jesus Christ, something new is happening. And when God creates, he does not create in division of himself. God the Father plans. God the Son accomplishes. And God the Spirit's power confirms and, and brings it to pass. So this is what is going on here. There's a lot of symbolism. So we don't get lost on whether it's a literal dove or not, but what that dove represents. Peace, and purity, faithfulness. And liberty, and new creation, in the one on whom it descends. He is the firstborn of new creation, and will set the tone for new creation. And so all of this symbolism marks Jesus' ministry. All of these things are to be represented in Him because this is who He is. But there's also a necessity here. This sets... The tone that God does nothing apart from the power of His Spirit. God's Spirit indwelt in Jesus. God, again, does not separate Himself from Himself. So there's a necessity here that the Spirit empowers, the Spirit teaches, the Spirit guides, the Spirit Spirit preserves. And this is fitting that Jesus, everything He would do, He would do fully in the Spirit of God. Because this sets the tone for humanity. This is how it is to be done. This is why Jesus leaves and sends his spirit. Because Jesus, in bodily form, could be in one place at one time with his disciples. But his spirit, like a flame that is distributed, can be with every one of his disciples through every age throughout history. And so the spirit that worked in Christ to teach, to proclaim, to perform, still works in his people. Let's not get this confused with those who falsely teach that if Jesus had the Spirit, He can do miracles, i.e. you have the Spirit, you can do all the same miracles. Don't hear me saying that. Because nothing you can do, nothing you do is done apart from Him. You are not Jesus, but you have been given His Spirit so that anything you do is accomplished in the power of God. And nothing you do as in being in Christ is done apart from His Spirit. So this is a beautiful encouragement to the believer. And also what we see is we see a a, a Trinitarian working in this thing. The heavens are opening up. The Spirit comes down. And now we're going to see the Father speaking. Because we know who the voice is. Verse 11. And a voice came down from heaven. You my beloved son with you i am well pleased this is the same language as the transfiguration this is my beloved son listen to him when heaven speaks and jesus is present there there is confirmation and there is encouragement And what is happening here is that the king of heaven has sent his son to bring his kingdom down to earth and in a con- there's a confirmation that the things of heaven and the things of earth are coming together in one person, my son. This is meant to encourage believers. This is meant to leave you in awe and wonderment. But terrify the enemies of God. This should bring to mind the imagery and the language of Psalm 2. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 2. This Psalm 2 is speaking of the King of Israel in a direct sense, but in a prophetic sense, speaking about the true King of Israel, the true Son of God. Listen to the language, because Jesus is not coming into a world that is welcoming Him. Jesus is not coming into a world that's happy to see Him. Jesus is not coming as a friend to the world, but in the midst of His enemies. But look at the promise for the kingdom of God and the people of God in Psalm 2. Look at all, the, all of the parallels that we're going to be dealing with this morning. Why do the nations rage, Psalm 2 verse 1, and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed Messiah here, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Basically, let us be our own kings and our own gods. But he who sits in heaven laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision, that he will speak to them in his wrath, and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, and the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and to the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a powder's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in His way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. This is what the baptism of Jesus declares. God is drawing a line in the sand. The kingdom of this world will no longer prevail. The kingdom of this world has no hope. My king, who I set up, who I consecrate, who I set apart for my purposes, kiss him, bow before him, rejoice in him, take refuge in him. Otherwise, you will be destroyed. Because his kingdom alone will stand. Amen. This is my beloved son, with whom I am very well pleased. So why does this need to be said? This is important. With whom I am well pleased. This is a state of love, of of good pleasure that has always existed. Jesus' ministry and his humility have the full approval of heaven, have the full approval of the God of creation. So, what we have to be careful here is that making sure we don't misunderstand what's going on here. Many have suggested that heaven is pleased because of what Jesus has done, but he is the eternal Son. This is declaring the Father's pleasure with Him that has always existed. For their benefit, He tells them this. But His pleasure did not begin at Jesus' baptism. The Father has always been perfectly pleased with the Son. There's a few lessons in Jesus' baptism. One, as we've seen so far, it proves His humanity. As a man... He does everything that is required of the righteous of Israel. He is not exempt from anything that is expected of any man. If he was, he could not perfectly represent man. He must stand in their place and do everything that they were supposed to do, yet do it to the letter. every dot, jot and tittle. Secondly, this proves his deity. Because we see the confirmation. As we talked about last week. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Only God can bestow God. So we have God the Father ripping open heaven. Sending God the the Spirit on God the Son in perfect unity. I am one. I am And my ministry is declared before you. And in complete unity, God Himself confirms God the Son on earth. This is important. Because number three, this declares the Trinity, and this is a great defense, our best defense, one of many, against modalism. If you don't know what modalism is, it's an ancient heresy. that basically says God has different modes. He's the Father when He's in heaven, He's Jesus when He's on earth, and He's the Spirit when stuff's happening over here. Then you get a schizophrenic God who doesn't know who He is, and we don't know who He is. This is the position of Jehovah's Witnesses, one Pentecostals, Seventh-day Adventists, and many other cults in small sects. We must understand that at the same time, the Father is speaking, the Spirit is descending, and the Son is being baptized. Our God is one and yet three at the same time. And we're not meant to understand it because he is God and we are not. And this is the temptation for people to try to make God fit into their little pea brains. Well, I can't understand one God who is, who is three persons, so I will make a God into my own image. Your God is not God if it is not the God of the Bible. And so when you speak to your friends... Who hold to this, take them here. Who is speaking? Who is being baptized? Who is descending? All God in complete unity and agreement. The fourth thing we learn from Jesus' baptism this is meant to be an encouragement to us. I want you to think about this for a moment. Let me explain. We know the good news of the gospel. One of the things we talk about often here is union with Christ. Let's think about this for a moment. Christ's death and resurrection, his propitiation, his substitutionary atonement on our behalf, meaning he took what was meant for us, took our sin, gave us his righteousness, unites us to him. We die with him in sin. We rise again to new life with him. We are united to him because he has done it. We are his. No one can snatch us out of of his hand. No one can separate us from from his love. But then when we read these words, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We realize, and we should, if you don't, I want you to hear this, that if you are in Christ, the pleasure that the father has with the son is now yours if you are united to him. It is not your good works or your own righteousness that gives God pleasure. It is Christ's blood who covers you. And if it does, God could never be no more pleased with you now than he was when Christ was on the cross. There is nothing more encouraging for the believer. I am united to Christ and the Father is pleased with the Son. And the Spirit has sealed me so I know it to be true. I am his and he is mine. Our God, his people, united because of the Son. What a great encouragement. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever read this and realized if I'm in Christ and I'm united to Christ, Christ is united to the Father, if the Father's pleased with Christ, then the Father is pleased with me in Christ. That is a is a is a revelation for rejoicing. Not for arrogance. There's nothing that should make us prideful in this. But what an amazing revelation for us that it would be revealed to us that the Father's pleasure in the Son, when He unites Himself to you, is now your, the Father's pleasure in you. I want you to be encouraged in that because it is so easy to be discouraged. There are so many things that, in our flesh and in our minds that bring doubt and that bring fear. And we must remember whose we are. Amen? So I want to share something with you uh, in my study this week I came across. This. this was fantastic. So I don't know if you've ever read any of the pseudepigrapha, false writings. Basically, they sound like Scripture, but they're not really Scripture. So within them are the writings of the 12 patriarchs. Not really the writings of the 12 patriarchs, but it's, 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 it's beautifully written. So it's written by first century Jews, so early Christians who are Jews, and they're writing from the perspective of the 12 patriarchs, the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob. Each one of them gives a challenge to their people. So it reads like the uh, warnings we get in Deuteronomy, the, the, the prophetic looking forward that we get in, in the prophets, and they use Old Testament language but they all point to Christ. And so one of them, Judah, who is the, the, the seat of the throne, the seat of the kingdom of God, references Jesus' baptism. And this is how the writer of the Testaments of Judah, and just so you know, this is not scripture, but this was used throughout the early church to encourage the church. This was a good teaching tool and still is for the church. Because this is how early Jews who believed in Christ saw the fulfillment. It will be up on the screen. This is 19 of like 20. There's a lot here, but I just chose one because of the reference in here about the heavens being opened and its fulfillment. So picking up. After these things shall a star arise to you from Jacob in peace, and a man shall rise from my seed like the son of righteousness, walking with the sons of men in meekness and righteousness, and no sin shall be found in him. And the heavens shall be opened above him to shed forth the blessing of the Spirit from the Holy Father. And He shall shed forth a Spirit of grace upon you. And you shall be unto Him sons in truth. And you shall walk in His commandments, the first and the last. This is the branch of God Most High. And this is the wellspring unto life for all flesh. Then shall the the scepter of My kingdom shine forth. And from your root shall arise a stem and in it shall arise a rod of righteousness to the Gentiles to judge and to save all that call upon the Lord. I love getting a picture into the early church and how they saw the fulfillment of Scripture and how the Jews evangelized to the Jews using their Old Testament Scriptures and the fulfillment that's in Christ. And we can still proclaim and declare the same things 2,000 years later. All right, our second thing, Jesus' temptation, and I will not spend as much time on them as I did the baptism. The baptism is what's what's central here. But there's still a few things we can pull out of the Spirit driving Jesus into the wilderness. Picking up in verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Alright, so first thing you should notice is, who is doing the work? The consecrating in our first section, the Spirit. Who is doing the work and the sending of the temptation in our second session, The Spirit. You have to understand, again, this is not plan B. Jesus was not caught off guard. The Spirit confirms His consecration, but He also drives, directs, and orchestrates His temptation. And so, this we must understand that God is sovereign in all things, even in temptation. And the Spirit leads in all things, even things that seem horrible in the moment. Why would God ever send his son into the wilderness to eat nothing and drink nothing for 40 days and be tempted by the devil on top of that? This is hard for many to stomach. And again, This is the temptation of trying to put Almighty God into not-mighty me and try to understand this. How could God do this? And before I explain what this means and why this is necessary, let's think about a parallel. Anywhere else where you think that God has done this? Think about Job. Consider my servant Job. Satan has no authority that is not given to him by God. Satan doesn't come up with this idea on his own. God brings it up to Satan. Consider my servant Job. And he gives Satan full reign over everything in Job except his life. And he is tempted and he is tried and he is afflicted. It does not curse God. And even when he questions God, he repents for it. How much more so? God the Father says, Consider my servant. Not my servant Job, but my servant is in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 and 40, 40 through 42. Oh, comfort Israel. This is my servant. Not just any servant, but my servant, my suffering servant who will take on the sufferings of the people. And I will send him into the wilderness. And Satan, you do your worst. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But this has to prove a point. This is going to beg the question, why was Jesus tempted? We'll get there in just a moment. But I want you to get the details. The details here are important. Mark does not include a lot, but what he includes is important. The first thing we see mentioned twice, wilderness. Why was it important that he went in the wilderness? Well, one, if you remember from our reading earlier from Isaiah 64, Israel was in a state of wilderness. What does wilderness represent? Always represents dryness. Does not, is not fruitful. But in Scripture, it is always Hardship. The wilderness is never associated with anything good; it is always negative. Let's think about the times when the wilderness comes into play. It's the testing ground for Moses in his early life. He kills the Egyptian, he's sent out into the wilderness. It's the testing ground for Israel when they're sent out into the wilderness after the Exodus. And here, it will be the testing ground for Israel's, for true Israel. So three things we're going to see about wilderness that God always uses is for testing and for proving. If you can make it through the wilderness, it will prove whose you are and who you rely on. It's also a time of trusting, because when you're in the wilderness, there there are none of the comforts of home. Testing, proving, and trusting. Jesus, like Israel, must be tested, must be proved, and shown to trust in the Lord in all things. And the details here about what's going on in the wilderness is beautiful. This wild beast. This is not comfy, domesticated animals. These are wild animals. But he's the creator of all things. The lions and tigers and bears and all that, he created them. They are under his power. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the Lord of recreation. So even the most terrifying things that man will have to face ministers to Jesus while he's in the wilderness. And on top of that, he sends his angels who are comforting him and ministering him during this time. All Jesus has in the wilderness is the animals, the angels, and the word of God. And we know this from the other gospel accounts that when he's tempted by Satan and the the temptations, Satan's not thinking small, he's thinking all the kingdoms of the world. He's thinking, or he does think small when he wants him to convert a, a stone to bread. But Jesus finds his comfort in the word of God. He finds his ministers as the animals and the angels. And we got 40 days. This number comes up a lot. If you've read your Bible, it's there often and it is symbolic. And so 40 also every time we see 40 it means hardship and testing as well. Think about the times 40 has come up. Moses was driven into the wilderness for 40 days. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 years, excuse me. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. Noah was in the boat for 40 days and 40 nights. This time of testing. You go on. Jonah proclaims to Nineveh in 40 days your city will be destroyed. Jeremiah lays on his side for 40 days. Elijah was in the wilderness for 40 days with no food or water, and the angels ministered to him. Every time, you get 40 days, you get kind of a wilderness imagery, and there's also hardship and testing. This is not meant to be for us to get focused on why 40 and the exact number of 40 days, but it is meant to be symbolic, that there is a testing here. There's a wilderness period that is required before ministry. We'll get into that in just a moment when we look at application. But so now we have those things in mind. Why was Jesus Jesus tempted? So I got a few things here as well. So it proves, like we see in Hebrews 4, that he could be tempted in every way, yet without sin. It must be brought to its fullness you have not been tempted, and any of you tell me, I'm being tempted, I'm being persecuted. If you have not been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights with no food and water, you have not been tempted until you've seen that. Yet without sin. Also, it shows us his complete obedience. The Spirit drove him there. He didn't complain, but he was obedient. Philippians 2. Obedient in every way. Israel was not faithful in their 40 years. True Israel goes into the wilderness for 40 days and must prove to be faithful so that He can represent Israel and be their new head. And Christ was faithful on Israel's behalf during His wilderness period. But more importantly, He was tempted by Satan. And this goes to show that God's opposition holds no power over him, that he would not triumph in his temptation. Romans 16 tells us that God will crush Satan under your feet, meaning the church. So the same God who unites us to Christ in baptism also unites us to his power to overcome and resist Satan. All those people say, yeah, I can resist Satan, and, and people want to speak against Satan, You are foolish if you think you can, if you are not perfectly God and man. But because he did, we can stand in his work again. That Satan has no power over him. The accuser of mankind, the adversary of God, cannot stop the plan of God or the kingdom of God from accomplishing its purposes. Jesus proves that. Anything Satan throws at me. No food, no water. I will make the lions be my nurses. It's amazing. We're going to see later in chapter one that him casting out demons is further confirmation of that. That the wicked realm of Satan has no power over him, and that he does with it what he pleases. But as a humble servant, he endures all things so that he can become our representative. And so this should be an encouragement for us as well, that he supplies similar comfort. Think about this, that the God of all creation can use his creation to minister to you. He can make the wild beasts come to your aid like Daniel. He has all things under his authority and he uses it to minister to his own. You must hear this. He never promises deliverance right away. Never promises that this will be short. 40 days is a long time. But he does promise that he will never leave you or never forsake you. And he will minister to you in the wilderness, period. And we can find the same comfort as Jesus did. His word, his creation, and even though we can't see them, his angels protecting and ministering to His people. And there's a benefit to trials. I tell you, the wilderness periods are good. Don't believe me, believe James, the brother of our Lord. Look at James chapter 1. There is an application for us here. No, we will never be in the wilderness tempted by Satan for 40 days with no food and water. Thank God. But... What happens when we are tempted and tried and tested? James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Joy? Only a Christian can say that. No other religion, no one else in the world can say, I will be joyful in my trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Testing and trials are for our perfection, are for our completeness. And I would argue that everyone has them, and prior to every time of of ministry and often in conversion, there will be a wilderness time. Well, like, look what the Lord has just done, and look what the Lord has just called me to, and now look, the Lord has thrown me into the wilderness. Why? Because there are things you can only learn in the wilderness that you can't learn when it's going well. Because until you've been tested, until you've been proved, until you've shown that you can trust the Lord, you're still tempted to rest in your own strength. Everything's easy when I'm, when I'm hanging out by the lake in, in Galilee, just fishing and, and, and eating fresh bread. But when I'm in the wilderness with no food, with no water, Satan in my ear accusing me, tempting me, yet I trust in the Lord. There is a refinement that happens. There is a perfection that works in the work of the believer in the wilderness. And it can only happen in the wilderness because it takes away all of our distractions, all of our crutches, all of our safeguards, and puts us bare naked before the Lord. God, I have no one else to rely on but you. If you've ever had one of those, think about how the Lord has used it. Because you can be stubborn in it. Like, Lord, this is terrible. I want to be out of here as soon as possible. Lord, get me out of here. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. How many of your prayers have sounded like that? Get me out of here. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. When they should be more like, Lord, sustain me. As long as you need me to, I will stay here so that I will learn what you want me to learn. Shree sure you reminded me this week of coming here was a bit like a wilderness period for me. You know, coming out of being a DJ and the lights and flashes of the nightclub and all that, coming from a church that was highly produced and felt like a nightclub sometimes. It was re- everything was really well done and perfectly presented. And then coming to a humble church that had very little going for it, almost nothing. And it felt like wilderness, like, Lord, we're depending on you. We don't have any plan Nothing we can do apart from we're going to be faithful to your word and care for your, your people. You know, and as Claire remarked to me yesterday, like it's amazing what the Lord has done in the last four years. But that wilderness time, the months upon months, and a couple of you were here, of every week wanting to encourage people that there were no visible signs of encouragement. But, having to be humbled and having to be broken down. And I have never prayed like I have prayed since I have come to this church. I have never had to rely on the Lord until I have come here. And I see the Lord has done all of that. And not to exalt what I have done by any means, but to encourage you. That at the moment it seems like nothing good can ever come out of this. What good could come out of the wilderness? Everything has been stripped away from me. Sometimes, often, that is the best place for you to be. And it is because of the gospel, the good news. So I'm going to land here on 14 and 15. I'm going to touch this briefly. We're going to spend more time on it next week. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. John preceded Jesus in everything, in his ministry, in his his message. They both proclaimed, repent and believe. But he also preceded him in his arrest, his suffering, and his death. But I want to stick with the message this morning. We'll get into more of the details next week. Repent and believe. Turn from and turn to. This is the message. This, in the Greek, is a continuous command. This is not meant to be a one-time thing, and so often we sell this short. Well, if you just repent once and believe once, get baptized once, pray a prayer once, then you're good to go. It's a good laugh. Because we've all heard the lie. This is continuous. The message for the non-believer. If you are lost, repent and believe. Turn from death Turn to life because you have no other hope. And once you do turn, the message for the believer is repent and believe. Turn from your old self, turn to the new. Repent, die to your sin, put them to death, mortify everything in you that is not of Christ and believe that he can bring you to new life in him. Turn from, turn to, turn from, turn to. Every time you struggle in your sin and flesh, you are in good company or wicked company, as whenever you want to think about it. We all must do this. My struggle is because I'm still in my flesh. But I need to turn from it. The answer is not to focus and fixate on, oh, my sin, oh, my sin. I know so many of you. I love you guys. But so often you get so burdened by your sin. and How come I keep struggling with this? How come I keep struggling with this? I want to physically pick you up and turn you to Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to the one who paid for your sins. Repent and believe. We can make preaching so complicated, gospel presentations so complicated, but it's not. The content of Jesus' message is the content of John the Baptist's message is the content of our message. Repent for, uh, of your sins, turn from the world, and turn to Christ. Here is death, here is life. That is the gospel proclamation. What we see brings all this together is the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the message of the kingdom of God. This is the message of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Countries will fall. Nations will fall. Political parties and presidents and everything else will fall. The kingdom of God is at hand, meaning the kingdom of our God, who has existed forever, has torn open the heavens and come down to earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's nothing you've ever seen, yet it is in your midst, because I am in your midst. It is a spiritual kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, which Jesus' ministry proclaimed and proved by the signs and wonders. Why are people's eyes popping out of their heads? Because they were seeing signs from a world that was not their own. This stuff doesn't happen here. But this man represents another kingdom. And if you believe in him, you prove that you are a citizen of his kingdom. And if you are his... His kingdom will never pass away, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. And if you are His, the entrance fee is His blood. The doorpost of the kingdom of heaven is marked with His blood, and if you are covered by it, you are His, and you stand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, this is great news, this is, this is occasion for rejoicing. But if, like Psalm 2, your identity is in another kingdom, you will rage and you will plot in vain. You may smile, but you will lash out at him in your heart. Repent and believe, because the kingdom of God is at hand. This is our message. Again, more on that next week. Quickly, in conclusion, what we'll pull from each of these sections Jesus' baptism shows his humanity and deity, and it inaugurates his ministry. Jesus' temptation shows his faithfulness and Satan's powerlessness. Jesus' gospel proclamation shows the way to salvation and kingdom citizenship of those who believe. This is the gospel message. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ, Son of God, his kingdom is at hand. And in Him there is life and life everlasting. And with it comes all the life in the Spirit. The beauty and the purity and the peace and the innocence and the, and the faithfulness and the love that can only be found in the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we praise You. We praise You. We praise You. What else can we say? The God who creates and redeems and sustains knows us by name and knows the hairs on our head. The God who loves us as Father, laid down His life as brother, strengthens us as helper is one this is good news this is a kingdom like no other let the words on our lips and the meditations of our heart be repent and believe jesus christ the son of god citizens of his kingdom If you do not know Christ this morning, my prayer for you is repent and believe. Turn to everything that you are clinging to that is death and turn to life. If you are in Christ, you are a believer this morning, my prayer for you is repent and believe. Turn from everything that you are clinging to that is death, that you know to be death, that you know to be lifeless. How many of you spend your days and weeks, pursuing things that are nothing, vanity, vapors. You have tasted what is the eternal, imperishable, a sweetness like no other. Believe that that is good enough and that is enough for you. Let the gospel rule in your minds because Christ rules in your hearts. And it is in his name we pray, amen.